Well, uh, we're going to roll up our sleeves, get right to work this morning. Half of the sermon will be this morning, and the other half will conclude tonight. All right? Now, you're looking at me like, I do not want to do this, but I am serious. We're going to do this. I'm going to begin this message now, but I'm going to be asking you, my friend, my brother, my sister in Christ, to finish it this evening. All right? Now, you may not have any speaking skills. Uh, Neither do I. Jesus just helps me. All right? So, we're going to work on it. We're going to do it. I'm going to explain what this means later. But what we've done so far the last few weeks, we briskly shot through a sermon series uh, called Sharing God's Gospel. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul gives this great summary of the gospel and what it is. And he talks about first how God motivates us to make that impossibly difficult walk across the room to share our faith, right? To open our mouths and actually speak what Jesus has done in our lives. Secondly, we looked at how a new perspective on God gives us a new perspective of ourselves and thus helps us view other people differently. Helps us view other people in a way we've never viewed them before, in a spiritual, eternal perspective. Finally, we open the, uh, the, the contents of the gospel itself, gospel message itself, and you learned how to share God's gospel on a napkin. Remember that last week? It was good, clean, fun. You received a free napkin. Uh, we were all walked away happy. It was wonderful. So this week, we're going to have a little appendix. I'm having like a, a you know, if you read a book, there's like an afterword. And as a pastor, you get to add on chapters to sermon series. And it becomes annoying. It's like, is this ever going to end? It will. But not this week. Uh, this is our appendix because there's another way in which the Apostle Paul introduces people to Jesus and his good news. There's another way we haven't covered. And that is by sharing his personal experience of how God intervened into his life. (laughs) He shared his story or his testimony. And he does so three times. Three times in the book of Acts, Paul shares his testimony. And we're going to take a peek at the third of three times that Paul shares his story of what Jesus did in his life. Alright, so, if you could turn with me to Acts chapter 26. That's on page 800 in the Bibles we've provided for you. If you're using those Bibles, page 800. And while you're looking that up, I want to share with you a bit of background. Acts, the book of Acts, was written... To show how the risen Christ transformed people. How he changed people's lives and created these gatherings of people who worshipped God and learned from his word. They were called churches. These gatherings were formed through the Holy Spirit as he worked in people's lives and bonded people together. Paul is one of those transformed lives. Okay, and Luke actually tell, first tells his story. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And Luke first tells the story in Acts 9. But Paul shares it with other people three times. That's what we're going to look at the third of those thir- three times today. Uh, not long after he trusts his life to Jesus, Paul obeys Jesus. 
and goes to share his good news all over the Mediterranean world, which is kind of the locus of the universe at this time, the locus of the known world, really. And he shares it, he shares it, he shares it. But people, understandably, when you talk about changing their lives, when you talk about transforming their priorities, when you talk about get all up in their business, people get fed up with it. They don't want to hear it anymore. And especially his own people. Paul was a Jewish person who believed in God and the scriptures and believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And they, many of them, did not believe that. They did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so they accused Paul of blasphemy. Paul visited Jerusalem after a long period of time, hadn't been there. They accused him of blasphemy and they run to mommy and daddy, right, to tell him which in this case was the government, right? Not too dissimilar to what we often do now. We don't like the government until we're in trouble. Help us, right? So uh, the government, very similar, was there to help the Jewish people when they needed it. And so they go to the government and they make up stuff about Paul, what he'd done wrong, etc. Their hope is that they can either get him sent to the big house to serve six to nine, right? Or... Or, if that doesn't happen, on his way to various trials and between places, they can ambush him and assassinate him. That's how much they despise this guy and what he was sharing. Now, there's four levels, basically. Basically, four levels of government in first century Rome. All right, you've got your city magistrates, right? Then you have your governors who would kind of rule bigger provinces, then you would have the Roman Senate. And finally at the top, the reason they make all the movies and have HBO miniseries and things like that, you got the emperors, right? That's why people, people like to watch stuff on TV about Rome. That's what you have with Roman government. Now Paul is a Roman citizen. He's born one. And that's a big deal. He gets certain rights that other people don't. Right? One of those rights is he can appeal, if someone accuses him of a crime, he can appeal all the way to the top. All right? And he does so in this situation where people are accusing him of blasphemy and making up stuff about him. But first, before he goes all the way to the top, he goes before these, some of these governors, which is pretty high up. All right? Not before the local police, not before city officials, all the way to these rulers of provinces. Sometimes they were even called kings. Right, they're given those, those titles. So, first he sees a Roman governor named Felix. Uh, Felix uh, throws him in jail uh, in order to earn points with the Jewish people. All right, he's like, you know, I'd like to earn, you know, get a little street cred with these people. I'm going to throw Paul in jail for a while. Just let him sit. Let him think about things. His second point in doing this, obviously he wanted to earn points, but he also wanted to see if Paul would uh, pay him a little Something, something under the table, right? A little bribe to get out of the prison. Well, Paul wasn't down with that. <laughs> he didn't do that. He uh, trusted in the Lord, take care of him. Felix was very disappointed. Felix was eventually succeeded by a man named Festus. Uh, Festus had been around. He'd worked his way up the ladder. And he had heard, was surely heard Paul share his testimony at least one of the two times that, that are recorded in Acts up to this point. Right? He'd been around. He'd been around some of these proceedings, this sort of thing. 
It's very almost certain that he'd heard Paul share his testimony, his story how Jesus changed his life. Now, uh, Uncle Festus, as I like to call him, not to be confused with Uncle Fester from the Adams family. Uh, I just, I like to have this image when I think of Festus. I don't know why. Uncle Festus, having heard this story, uh, not finding any guilt in Paul, decides to take him to a fellow governor, the next province over. Right? And in this case, it's a guy named Agrippa. King Agrippa II. Remember, governors are often called kings. Now, Agrippa's dad was a governor before him and was a serious land tycoon as well. Had lots of land he was governing and owning. So Festus was no doubt going to Agrippa. And here's this person who's causing all this trouble. But he was also going to flatter Agrippa. Right? He's kind of a powerful person. I'm going to kind of at least pretend, we don't know this for sure, but he's at least, at least going there to say, look, you're an important person. Yeah, I'm going to treat you that way, so you'll be nice to me in turn. Make sense? All right, so that's our situation here. While explaining Paul's situation to King Agrippa, Festus, remember the governor in Judea down here, Festus is something remarkably insightful. Now, hopefully you've opened already to Acts 26. If you look right before Acts 26 and Acts 25, is the same page on page 800. This is what Festus says to Agrippa. He's explaining what's going on. He said, these accusers stood up. These are people who are accusing Paul. This is verse 18 of chapter 25. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in Paul's case of such evils as I supposed. So he was expecting something bad. All right? Big charges, murder, conspiracy, that sort of thing. Rather, this is in verse 19, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And basically he says a few more words of flattery. And then King Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And so basically all of Acts 26 is Agrippa hearing Paul's story. Festus had grown up around a circus of religion. Almost certainly. Hundreds of gods and goddesses passed down from the Greeks. All right? There were these newly popular mystic religions all right, where they had all these secret rituals that went on behind the scenes. All right? And they, they kind of drew people in by promising this knowledge that no one else could know unless you were part of this religion. All right? In addition to that, he had just gotten a new post as governor in Judea all right, where there was many sects of the Jewish faith with different beliefs and certainly many outcries and outbreaks of dispute. You had your Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Zealots, and you had the out-of-touch-with-society Essenes. All right, just to name a few. My point in drawing this picture for you is here's a guy who has seen all kinds of religions. He had been around plenty of religious speak from the moment he was born. All right? And you can imagine how religions, their beliefs, their customs, their followers 
had all begun to kind of bleed together in this guy's mind. But, having heard and seen Paul speak his story, how Jesus of Nazareth utterly transformed him, he, that is Festus, speaks of two categories, right? In verse 19, religion and Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Festus' heart may still have been resistant to the good news of Jesus. But through Paul's story, he remembers the most important fact of the Christian faith, which is what? Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He may not believe it, but now he sees it clearly. There's something different about this. There's a man named Jesus, and apparently... He was dead, but is alive again. All right? And this is crucial, the Christian faith, because the resurrection of Jesus proves everything Jesus said was true, that he is divine, that he can secure forgiveness for our sins. Now, I say all this, um, and I should mention this point should not be lost on us because we live in a day and age where people constantly hear terms like worship, God, church, temple, right? A fundamentalist, a religion. And for so many people, for so many of us even, all of these terms right, just kind of bleed together. It's all the same. You ever heard someone say that to, to you before? Heard someone say that in passing? And it's kind of all the same. These religions. But sharing one's testimony, one's story about a changed life, all of a sudden it's real, right? It's tangible. Because it, or rather he or she, is standing right before their eyes. A changed life. What I want us to to try to see this morning, in a nutshell, is this. That your story of faith in Christ, your story presents reality. Or even good religious talk can confuse and discourage. Right? It can confuse the skeptic. It can discourage the seeker. Your story presents reality where things get hazy for people when it comes to religion. I have a friend who once shared uh, Jesus' message of good news uh, with this guy. Uh, shared it very similarly. How I, I kind of shared it with you last week. Um, and as he was sharing, he talked about this. He said the words, hey, look, you have to know, through the cross, Jesus took away all of your sins. Through the cross, Jesus took away all your sins. Well, after explaining this message to this guy, he didn't see the guy for a long time until he bumped into him at a library. All right, he was kind of like in one of those cubicles. He's like, hey, you know, Jim, is that you? So they strike up a conversation, and he actually, this guy tells my friend, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. My friend's incredibly excited. They get in this conversation. But his excitement tapers a little when he realizes something's wrong here. Something's amiss. This guy who before was real talkative, garrulous kind of guy was now 
quiet and very reluctant to speak. Uh, he explained how he moved out of his apartment because he found himself impatient with his roommate. Uh, he quit his job because he started to have angry thoughts about his boss. And so and he generally just cut himself off from society. And my friend was like, what, what happened? Like, you know, what is this? You don't do that necessarily. And um, he concluded, he said, well, I listened to everything you said. And you said that Jesus takes away all my sin. But I found myself still sinning. And it's like, oh, oh gosh. <laughs> We've made a big mistake here. And uh, thankfully, you know, so he said, I cut off all relationships. Right? Because when you're in relationships, what happens? You sin. It's inevitable. Well, he goes on to explain that no, when I said Jesus takes away all your sin, I mean Jesus takes away the guilt of your sin and the punishment for your sin. And yes, Holy Spirit, because you trust in Jesus, comes inside you and begins to change your life, but it's a gradual process. Ah, I should have explained this. But as you know, there's only so much you can explain, right? When you sit down with someone to share the gospel, you can't get it all in. And that can leave people a little confused. Now this, this story is rare perhaps. I realize that. Happened to this guy. But there is so much that can be said in trying to explain the gospel. Sometimes it's good to step back. And share what trusting Jesus looks like. Right? In real flesh and blood. The power at work in a person's life. So we're going to work on this this morning. We're going to look at what your story looks like. Paul's testimony here in Acts 26. I, I said we would eventually get to Acts 26. You've been holding it there for like five minutes, I realize. Paul's testimony provides us with a framework, a wise framework, how to organize and share our story. And friends, this is important. Because you might say, well, you know, I know how to share my story. It's my story. But there's a couple things I've found through my own trial and error and sharing my story with other people. One, oftentimes, we share, you share your story and it's great. It's awesome. But oftentimes, we end up talking a lot about ourselves and the story and not a lot about Christ. And the hero of the story becomes us. Now we conquered. And then what about Jesus and the gospel, right? And we leave that out. That's one mistake, common mistake. The second one often happens is this. You, you want to share the good news of Jesus with someone. You're sharing it. You're getting into it. But you're sharing so many details that it's hard for the person to keep track. You ever done this? Like, you start sharing your story and you, you start going into who was your boyfriend at the time, right? And uh, what the weather was like. And, oh, yeah, but I didn't explain. My mom and my dad were divorced, but this time they were separated and they're going through some legal issues. And all that's really important. I'm not discrediting that. But you may want to leave that for another time. This is why it's important to work on our stories, to actually write it down on paper and even practice sharing it. We're going to look at Paul's example of this, alright? So we're going to go through Acts 26, and as we go through, we're going to see seven elements, important elements of sharing one story, okay? Let's start. Acts 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, okay, buddy, here we go. You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and made this defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies 
of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul begins with a sort of preparation statement, right? He, he's preparing them for this defense that he is making because of the accusations made against him. Now with us, we're rarely sharing our story in front of accu- you know, uh, accusers, right? We live in a day and age where there's, especially here in Cayman, where people aren't going to necessarily persecute you for your faith. But you do want to prepare people for what you're going to say. You want to give a way of saying, here's why I think it's worth it for you to listen to this story over the next few minutes. Alright? So this can happen in a few ways. You can share a particular need in life that Jesus would fulfill. A character trait of God that proved crucial for you trusting him. Right? It could be his love, his persistence, his discipline, his patience, his faithfulness. Right? Or it could be someone or some circumstance that God used to help you trust your life to him. Alright? So, what are some examples of this? I'm going to give you a few of these. You could say, hey, let me just start off by saying I never wanted to have anything to do with God. But he kept putting people in my life who just like him consistently loved me for who I was. That's a great opening statement. Or you can, I'll skip down here. Hey, I thought I was a Christian because I was a pretty good person. Turns out, being a pretty good person wasn't enough. That's a great way to draw people in, get their attention, and show them where you're headed with your story. Does that make sense? That's what Paul does. Guys, listen. I'm going to make a defense. Listen closely. These words are going to be important for you. Let's see what Paul does next. Verses 4 through 9. Follow along with me. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known it for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul shares life B.C., right? Life before Christ. Right? Paul was a guy who seemed religious, but God really made no difference in him. He remained an angry person. But the man you see before you now, Festus, and people listening, a gentle man, right, willing now to suffer and not make others suffer for what I believe. What we want to do is give people an idea of what things were like for us before you trusted in Christ for salvation. What was your relationship with God like? Right? Was it non-existent? Were you bitter towards God? Hostile? Angry? Stale? Relationship with God, kind of lukewarm, stale? Was your relationship with God based on a lie? You know, maybe I thought I was right before God because I was a pretty good person compared with other people. Right? How did you relate to other people before you trusted Christ? How are you living a double life? Right? One way at church, one way in front of Christians, another way at nights on weekends, that sort of thing. 
And I need to make an important aside here. Oftentimes, people feel that they, you know, they've been a Christian maybe for their whole lives, or maybe for a long time, and thus, their story is not as good. Right? Their life before Christ didn't have this big contrast to what it is now. I want to address this for a moment, because one, first of all, a couple things. We have to realize that this is you, and, and you kind of think, you kind of discourage sometimes, man, I don't really get up for sharing my story. It's kind of normal. First of all, you were not a Christian out of the womb, all right? The doctor did not slap you, and bam, Holy Spirit, right? This did not happen. You, you were not a Christian until you could mentally and volitionally trust Jesus with your life, all right? Not the cartoon Jesus on the sticker you got at Vacation Bible School, right? Not that Jesus. And not the, the kindergartner uh, who played Jesus, right, in the Christmas pageant at church. But the real Jesus. You had to trust that Jesus, all right, with your heart. Now, admittedly, we can trust Jesus early on in life. And not remember an exact moment where we trusted Jesus. But then again, you had to trust someone you had never before seen in your life. Right? Trust your life to this person. What really caused you to do this? What circumstance, what person, what maybe crisis of belief, what series of experiences, or what season of your life led you to reach out to this person who lived nearly 2,000 years ago and trust him? You see what I'm getting at? You, you, none of us were Christians our whole lives. We've got to remember, it's neither praying a prayer that's a requirement for being a Christian, nor is it being baptized. But it's when you trust in Jesus. When did that happen? Or what period of time did that happen in? Secondly, remember this, even if it's gradual, and you, maybe you battled to, to earn God's salvation. You were struggling with how you looked in front of others. You wanted to appear real religious and holy. Even then, your normal, non-dramatic testimony might be just what the Holy Spirit ordered for that person. For two reasons. A, first, it's most likely that your story will be more relatable to most people. It'll be more relatable to most people. When people hear dramatic stories, often find they will use it as an excuse. They'll, they'll dismiss it and say, hey, people like that need religion. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they need the church and God. And I know because I have one of those stories. And I often fear this. When I'm sharing with people, I think about it all the time. Man, they're thinking, yeah, he just needed Jesus. He's one of those guys. You're like, you know, without Jesus, they couldn't live like a normal life. Well, your testimony can show how you needed change even with a so-called normal life, right? And also, you get an opportunity to share the gradual part of it and how it leads up to now. You can share your present dependence on Christ. See, friends, some people, they're not impressed with how you came to trust Christ 15 years ago. They need to hear how you are depending and trusting in Jesus now, Right? How are you trusting them at work, in your marriage, in relationships? Does that make sense? You can do that through what, quote-unquote, a normal testimony. But friends, it's not normal. Because God has transferred you from darkness to light. 
All right, that's my aside. Paul goes on, a third element here in verses 9 through 11. Read it with me if you would. He says, I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints, in other words, many Christians in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, he's saying, hey, look, I didn't necessarily kill them. I wasn't like on the chopping block, nor did I give the order. But when they came to a vote, I was pro-death for Christians. That's what he's saying. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them. I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. He went far and wide to find these people. It's not just like, hey, you walked into my McDonald's across the street. I'm going to persecute you. No, I'm going to go. I'm going to use my frequent flyer miles and I'm going to persecute you and towns all over this great nation. Expectations or misconceptions. Where did all this persecution start? Well, about Paul was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But he was convinced wrongly. Right? How are you convinced wrongly in your life? This kind of goes along with the previous one, number two, when you talk about before Christ. But expectations are misconceptions. Right? About Christianity. About Jesus. About what it means to be a Christian. About church. Right? That's often a big one. About what God requires of you to know him. People have so many misconceptions. It's important to share when you're sharing your story. People relate to that. Fourth element Paul shares. Verse 12 through 18. Read this with me if you would. He says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. In other words, on this road between cities. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that showed around me, and those who journeyed with me. And we had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Stop here. The goads were these things that people would use on the farm to prod oxen as they were treading out the drain. If the oxen kind of stopped for a while or being lazy, you got the goads out, you prodded them. Sometimes they would rebel and kick against them. But of course this was futile, right? Because they're sharp things going against their skin, right? And what Jesus was saying to Paul in this mention is, this is truth. You can kick against it, but it is going to pierce into your life regardless. All right. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, an eternal place with God. Notice, by faith in me, the requirement is trust in me. Like we talked about last week. I circled that at the end of the gospel presentation. Trust, the requirement for salvation. 
Here Paul shares the climax of his story, and that is what God did. Despite all the interesting things about Paul, and he's got a lot of interesting things about his story, he is sure, he makes sure to convey God as the climax of his story. You can, you can tell, right? When you read it, you can tell. And the way he describes God, his passion is lifting, his fervor is growing. Let me tell you what God did. Friends, people need to see not just that we've changed, but they want to hear that there's a God intervenes in life. There is a God who intervenes in life. And this is what we share at this part of our story. I like to condense it down to a short statement. But we can think about through whom. What did God do through a person? Under what circumstances? How were you feeling or what were you thinking during or right before God did this thing in your life? Right? That's what Paul does, right? Verse 14, he said, we fell down. Right? We fell down. We saw this light. Imagine what Paul was thinking as he fell down. Was he confused, bewildered? Did he pee in his pants because of this light that was before him? You know, like I probably would have done. You get a chance to share that with someone. Here's some examples. You could say, you know, but at this point, God sent someone who cared enough about me to say, you know what? I love you, but you're selfish. You're destroying yourself and those you love. Or maybe you say, you know, I was finally reading the Bible for myself and it made so much sense. It was like truth was spilling off the pages and into my heart. What did God do? Fifth element. We see, first of all, we see it in verse 15. When he says, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Right? Paul asks a question because he's going to do a response here. But also look with me in verse 19 through 21. Therefore, O Queen of Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and Judea, the Gentiles, they should repent and turn to God, the Christ. Paul gets to his response, the heart's response to God. Paul responded to God by obeying him and his call in his life from the heart. Now, our response to God, what was your response to God like when he changed you or when he introduced himself to you? It may not have been so rosy initially. You may have been scared, right? You may have been waffling back and forth between belief and unbelief. But you may have been joyful or you may have with immediate faith and trust, you know, you're ready to take on the world. Maybe you're confused. Or maybe you thought one thing was happening then but now looking back on it, you see that Christ was doing something else. It might be appropriate at this point, too, to share what those around you are thinking, what those, how those around it responded to Jesus' work in your life at that point. Paul does this earlier in Acts 22.9, where he says, look, other people didn't respond on the road to me, but I did. All right? You may want to share. Other people thought it was crazy. Other people thought... Oh, this is just a passing fad in this person's life. Sixth element, the changed and changing life. Look at verse 22 and 23. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people. 
and the Gentiles. Don't get too confused in the details here. The, the important thing is that Paul shares and responds with a new identity. He has a change and changing life. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5, he describes himself now as God's ambassador. I no longer live for myself. I'm a representative of this message before other people. Through the gospel, I'm constantly becoming more like Jesus and changing. For us at this point, the sixth element, give an account of how Jesus has changed and is currently changing your life. Some examples. Man, I began to see people differently after Christ did this in my life. Or, I began the slow process of breaking the sinful habit after Jesus intervened. Or I started to relate to God as a real father after I trusted he proved his love to me through the cross. You see, here's what happened as a result of meeting Jesus. Last thing, number seven. This is the great part. I love this. Verses 24 through 29, Paul shares how he hopes people respond to his story. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, and it's good for people to talk to you during your testimony to ask questions. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I love that. It's a little short question. He's kind of like prodding him a little, getting him to respond. Agrippa responds, yeah, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Listen to that language. Persuade, out of your mind. It sounds like 2 Corinthians 5, doesn't it? Not a coincidence, but I don't have time to talk about that. Would you persuade me to be a, a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except, of course, for being in jail in these chains. Make sure you conclude with your story how you hope someone responds. Paul is very direct. People up front, I love you. And because I love you, I'm sharing this with you and I want your life to change. I want to give us a few possible endings that can invite a gospel response. You can say, hey, Bill, has anything like this ever happened to you? It's a good question. And on. What about you? Has anything like this happened to you? Mary, may I share with you the good news this good news of Jesus, which has been so good for me. Can I share with you how it could be good for you also? And of course, you can't have your Mary without your Jane. So Jane, do you have any questions about what I've just shared with you? This is it right here. Paul gives us such a great framework to share our story. How do you plan to apply this to your life, friends? It's a simple application. My hope and prayer is that you finish this sermon. You finish it for me by sitting down tonight and putting your story on paper. I provided a few copies of how to deliver your testimony with a little worksheet on the book table in the back. And by about 2 p.m. this afternoon, it will also be online along with the audio of the sermon. Sit down with a friend, with a spouse, even on your own. Write it out. We have an opportunity to share how Jesus has changed your life.
Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would help us with this. God, it's easy to hear in church and not go do. I know because it's, it's easy for me. I often let things pass, Lord. Lord, help us just do the practical thing. And tonight, or tomorrow night, Lord, that we would take this worksheet, print it out from our computer, grab it in the back table, and just write it out. That we might be ready to share how you have changed our life and how you can change others' lives, Lord. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.